You're listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. Sponsored by Greenberg Traurig, LLP. My guest, Megan O'Sullivan, comes to us from Harvard University's Kennedy School, where she is the Jean Kirkpatrick Professor of the Practice of International Affairs and Director of the Geopolitics of Energy Project. Megan, I've really been looking forward to our visit, especially after last weekend, because I read your latest book, I think it's your third, Windfall, How the New Energy Abundance Upends Global Politics and Strengthens America's Power, which will be available next week, September 12th. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Jim. It's a real pleasure to be here. It's great to be in Texas to show some support for a state that's had a very difficult few weeks. And it's great to have the opportunity to speak to the World Affairs Council here. Well, thank you very much. You know, when I read your book, and I'm thinking about the majority of our listeners are are foreign policy wonks, but you really wrote this book to fill an intellectual vacuum, didn't you? Well, I wouldn't say it's a complete vacuum, but it is a very sparsely populated terrain, and that is the terrain between foreign policy and energy, and particularly energy markets. So I really, in some ways, wrote this book to address my own identity crisis in the sense that I think to really understand the world today, and particularly to plan for the future, we need to look at events both in terms of foreign policy, but also with an understanding of energy markets, particularly given all the changes that have been happening. And there aren't that many people who inhabit both worlds, in part because each world has its own lingo, its own technical issues, and it's easy to dismiss the other world as not being as relevant as it is. You know, one of the things we hear so much about, especially in the good state of Texas, is is energy independence for the United States even possible? And if so, Is it really in our best interest? Yeah, it's a great question, Jim. And in the book, I call energy independence America's unrequited love. So going back to President Nixon, we've had every president talk about energy independence as being something really desirable. And so we've all thought this was going to deliver us from some... Away from the dictators. Away from the dictators, deliver a new kind of sense of independence. And what I argue is that it might be possible for us to reach what most people think about as energy independence in the sense that we wouldn't need to rely on any other country for any source of energy. But to do so would require implementing some policies that would be very costly and very inefficient, all to deliver something that maybe isn't quite as attractive as we thought it was. Instead, what we want is really to have an energy situation that doesn't force us into awkward political positions, make us be dependent, politically, on powers abroad, doesn't warp our foreign policy, but it's okay to be dependent on global markets. And in fact, I think what we saw in the last couple of weeks with Harvey is that the better the global energy market system works, the better it is for all of us. You know, you mentioned Harvey, and we're about to see this very, very tragic situation in Florida. Last week, we experienced a shortage of supplies for gasoline. Was that due to market forces, or was it something tied to maybe a bit of panic caused by social media? I think that probably here we're looking at more of the latter. Mm-hmm. And especially, you know, lots of people, even people of my generation, remember the 70s and remember the fear of energy shortages. And that somehow strikes a visceral chord in all of us. So when people start to think there are going to be shortages, it tends to exacerbate the problem. In reality, I think there were some things that needed to be sorted out because of the refining capacity that went down. But this is a 
pretty localized problem that I understand is in the process of being addressed in fairly short order, what rather than a, a major systemic kind of crisis. What type of refineries are there in Florida that we might see? I don't think that Florida, especially the southern part of Florida, is as much a concentration of refinery. It's not like Baytown and Beaumont, Texas. Yeah, not like the Gulf Coast here. You know, another Texas and very Louisiana. timely issue is NAFTA, yeah. and the negotiators have been working at a feverish pace, hoping to conclude the negotiations by year end. In your book, you talk quite a bit about perhaps a missed opportunity with integration in North America. I wonder if you could talk about that, and then specifically how, if by chance we withdrew from NAFTA what would be the impact on energy markets? Sure. I think the first thing to point out is I know you know, and some of your listeners will also know, the economies of Canada, America, and Mexico, so the three economies of North America, are already hugely integrated. Mexico and the United States, we're almost jointly manufacturing a lot of things. So the relationship there is not a simple relationship of trade. You produce one thing, I produce another, and we swap. It is a joint process where products move across the border and multiple times. There's also a very growing and robust energy linkage. Mexico is the largest consumer of American natural gas outside of the United States. And that's a growing and significant component of our trade. Now, I think there's a prospect that the renegotiation could actually benefit all countries and could further the integration of the United States and Mexico in terms of energy in particular because energy was left out. Mexican energy was left out of the original negotiation because of Mexican political sensitivities. But the real risk is here that many of the benefits that are in place, many of the streamlined procedures that make it so easy to move people and equipment mm -hmm. across borders, many of the legal provisions that allow for the easier resolution of disputes, if those are lost because of either a renegotiation or an abrogation of the treaty, this could have very, very real and very quick economic negative externalities. Well, thus far, there's been so little discussion about the ramifications pertaining to energy it's been so much about manufacturing and jobs and the deficit. Yeah, I think there's been a gross overattention paid to the deficits. So this idea that one number can somehow completely sum up the health of the bilateral And not just with Mexico, but with other countries as well. Not just with well. Mexico. I mean, certainly with China, but also with Germany and South Korea. We've seen that South Korea and the trade agreement there has come into sharp negative focus by President Trump. At least Trump. for a few days. At least for a few <laughs> days. Yeah, hopefully that will pass. You know, another area where the Trump administration has taken, I think, a controversial position is the withdrawal from the Paris Climate Accord. And two questions related to that. Has the abundance or the new energy order, as you describe it, has that created, in a sense, a disincentive for progress on climate change? And secondly, how has the United States withdrawal in seemingly absence of leadership opened up opportunities, say, for others? Yeah. In regards to the first question, I think the calculation is much more complicated than people think. There are many people who just think that energy abundance in oil and gas has to be bad for the environment and for carbon emissions. There are some ways in which this is true. Uh, cheaper fossil fuel prices mean more demand for fossil fuels, and in some cases, natural gas is a very easy substitute for renewable energy. But there are other arguments on the other side that we need to take into account in the sense that also natural gas is a great substitute for coal, and we've seen that mm -hmm. in huge quantities throughout the United States, and there's real potential for that to be the case in China and India and other big coal consumers in the world. Also, some of the tight oil that's produced has a lower carbon footprint than the oil that we might otherwise be consuming. 
consuming. So it's a complex calculation. On the Paris Agreement, I think we really are losing an opportunity there. I think it was a great way for the United States to establish itself as a global leader on an issue that was important to- And exert our soft power, as you talk about in the book. Exert our soft power is a great example of how energy and how this new energy abundance actually put, in this case, the Obama administration in a very strong position to negotiate first with China and then with the rest of the world. So who's taking our place? Well, the most likely successor is, of course, China. A lot of countries around the world are looking for a country that's going to play the leadership role. We have clearly backed out of that position, and I think China is interested and ready to assume the role. I mean, since the current president, Xi Jinping, came to power in 2012, he's been very clear that China is now ready to move onto the global stage. And this is a departure from other Chinese presidents. You know, we have just another minute or so, and let me just tell our listeners a little bit about how your book is constructed. Sure. You have the three sections, and then yes. there's the last section where you really talk about the new order from different perspectives of countries, Russia, the Middle East and Europe, China. For our last question, just talk about China, because we hear so much about how China goes in there and really sets long-term contracts for commodities and basically has created sort of a colonial power. Is that changing? I think it is. I mean, that essentially China was operating for much of the last two decades on this notion that markets were not going to deliver their energy needs. And their energy needs were so critical to economic growth and political stability that they needed to construct sometimes, you know, totally new and not necessarily very palatable relationships with rogue regimes, as some Americans might call them, in Africa, in Latin America. So we saw all kinds of deals which had negative side effects and that were detrimental to the norms that the United States would like to see in the international arena. Now, China still is going to be investing abroad, is still interested in securing energy, but it has a lot more confidence in this age of abundance that it is going to be able to secure its needs. And so there's a lot less of a rationale for that kind of international activity. Very interesting. Megan, I want to thank you so much for being with us. You know, I've read a, a number of books on energy, and I really did find your book, Windfall, probably the best book I've read since Dan Jurgen's The Prize. So congratulations. Thank you. That's high praise, and I appreciate it. And thank you for your time. It's great to have you with us. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org. Global IQ Minute is sponsored by Greenberg Traurig LLP, a global firm with 2,000 attorneys in 38 offices across the globe. Visit the firm at gtlaw.com.